Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Marla is a multi-sector athlete that has built a stellar career in the private, public, and philanthropic sectors. We talk often, and the conversations are always engaging. She's an accomplished leader with a unique perspective formed at the intersection of capitalism, social impact, and currently that informs her current role as president and COO of the Skoll Foundation. She also sits on the boards of Square Financial Services and Etsy, and was previously SVP and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, founder and CEO of S-Card, assistant director for card and payments markets at the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and held various roles in Capital One's credit card franchise. The funding she raised at FS Card is one of the largest allocations of capital ever made to a company founded by an African-American woman. She's a Henry Crown Fellow of the Aspen Institute and on the U.S. Capital Chapter of the YPO. Previously, she served as a board member of CARE and Factor Trust. She holds an MBA from Stanford and an undergrad degree from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. An amazing woman who I'm proud to call a friend. Marla, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's great to have you in the show. It's, uh, you know, I've been trying to get you for a while. You know, a good place to start is at the beginning. Tie it to a lesson you learned. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's it's great to see you. You know, you're one of my favorites. So getting to talk to you is always a treat. And if I go way back, I can I can tie it back to this feeling of knowing that it is okay to not follow everything that you see around you and and take a different tack. And some some in some ways that was pushed on me or, or maybe forced. Um, so I grew up very very early part of my life probably from the time I was five till I was about 12, my family lived in Germany, not on a German military base. My father was not in the military. I just lived in a German neighborhood. And we were the only Americans. We were the only African-Americans you know, that anybody there had ever seen or, or met. And we just showed up there. This is a actually relatively rural for that matter. So this wasn't even like Berlin, right? This is a relatively rural part of Germany outside of Stuttgart. And uh, in one of the things about Germany is that it's not necessarily known for its great weather. It was cold a lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. I didn't I didn't really know that as a kid. Right. As a kid, I just thought like this is where we live. But what it meant was that on days when the weather was nice, when it was warm, mm -hmm. German children would go outside without any clothes on. They would literally just put on some sandals and go outside and play. At least wait, wait, in the bug? Like in the in bug? Wow. In the buff, completely. Yes. In wow. your birthday suit with some sandals. <laughs> on. So I saw this and I thought like, okay, cool. I'm in. Right. So I come downstairs in our house with my sandals on and my mother is like, whoa, what <laughs> is happening? And I explained like, well, look, all my German friends are doing this and doing that. And 
you know, I went to German school. I spoke German. My nobody else in my family really did. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried to explain this to her. And she was like, I don't care what your German friends are doing. No child of out of this house is going out of here without any clothes on. <laughs> go get dressed and you're free to go outside and play. But you may not do so in the buff. Yeah. And I was just, you know, in my childhood sort of, I can't believe it. It's so unfair and everybody else is doing it and I'm not doing it. But I think that sort of cemented for me in a way that everybody else is doing it does not mean that it is something that I should be partaking in or that it's sometimes somehow missing out on. It's just not necessarily what I can do, but I can still go participate or go participate in a different way or in a way that fits more for me. And it has always stood with me with a little bit of of humor and um, but also with a really important lesson that I think has informed how I've navigated. I mean that that sort of explains why most nude beaches around the world are packed with Germans. In fact, um, <laughs> not that I know, so I've heard. But, but uh, <laughs> learning that lesson is remarkable because people that achieve great things are not necessarily contrarian at their root, but are comfortable enough to kind of chart their own path and you are that i mean everybody heard your background boards and stanford and you've done the government you ran credit card policy for the cfpb when the agency was in its infancy like you've done just so many things and you know if i was a recruiter and i would look at your resume i was like wow she's really hot-footed like what the hell like why is she so anxious or where is she going <laughs> so fast like this is so weird but I want you to paint, connect the dots for me. And you can connect those dots going back, right? And the more you have in the rear view mirror, the easier it is to thread the story. But just what is common across all these different tacks and things and stuff in your portfolio currently? I think the common thread, if I were to, to try to make it all tie, mm -hmm. is willingness to tackle things that I don't necessarily have any idea or preconceived idea of how to do it, right? So mm -hmm. I left corporate and went into the public sector to help build a government agency from scratch. I had not spent a single second really thinking about the public sector or <laughs> public sector ambitions. Yeah. I went and launched a company from there. I knew a lot about the credit card space, about consumer finance, and had some ideas about how this could work, but I was a first time CEO. I had not built a, a prior company from scratch, right? And as you know, well, starting anything from day zero is, is very different than you might think. And yeah. that was something that I was willing to just kind of take that leap. And similarly now, as I've moved more and more in the direction of impact and now fully into a private foundation. I have spent some time getting to know the, the impact space. I built a company that was for-profit with a mission. Mm -hmm. I was in corporate philanthropy, but moving into this arena was again, a bit of, of risk tolerance, right? Willingness to take on and take a bet on myself to do something that I didn't necessarily know how to do, but I know that I know how to learn. I know how to ask questions that'll help me identify and understand the dynamics, figure out how I can be effective in that arena and trust that even when I make mistakes or or missteps, that I will use all of those for mm -hmm. uh, for ultimately greater good and, and willing and ability to develop an understanding. 
and and also that I have a good sort of common sense detector, right? So I I'll make mistakes, but they won't be gigantic blunders, right? There'll be things that are like, oh, okay, I just didn't fully appreciate X or Y, but it's but it's still something that within the frame makes makes general sense, right? I've, I've got kind of a, a comfort with that as a tool in my you know in my toolkit. So that gave that has put me in a position to be able to become what I've heard some people refer to me as a multi-sector athlete, right? In the private sector, the public sector, the philanthropic sector, and be comfortable in leadership positions in in all three because of that. It's in it and what you just it's I mean it's remarkable that kind of ability number one to learn go in with your eyes open, you know, this risk taking and just for the benefit of the listeners, when I really started interacting with Marla was when she was uh, when she started this amazing uh, credit credit card company, mostly for people that can't access credit, it's a very tough nut to crack. She happens to have also raised one of the most one of the biggest numbers of any um, African American woman, and it was like a ton, you know when you compare it to like what people raise in in Silicon Valley, it was small but a very large number. You ended up selling it, but what did you? What was the biggest lesson there, right? You were trying to solve a sort of a, it's not a social problem, but a, a societal problem with a commercial mean, very, very hard to do. And that kind of ties into what you do today at Skoll. Just give me a little bit of sense of, of that experience, because that's combining trying to solve two big things is very, one thing is very hard, two things is like very, very hard. So exactly. Well said. I, I think about this all the time. What did I what did I learn? What was my overwhelming takeaway from my entrepreneurial journey? Mm -hmm. And you pointed to a part of it, but I which is about capital and who has access to capital and who's empowered to write mm -hmm. checks and how that perspective determines what exists and what kind of leadership perspectives hold sway in our society. So that is certainly one dimension. And beyond that, I guess I would add, I really grew to understand systems and that the systems all intersect with one another, right? That mm -hmm. that the things that were playing a role in determining that the customer base I was looking to serve that needed access to, to productive credit mm -hmm. was a function of the capital markets, the the understanding or misunderstanding of the regulatory overhead, the opportunity to take leadership, right? That there is a sense of, of this is an important problem and this problem needs to be solved. And that that buy-in, that commitment is resident somewhere and that, but that place needs to be a place that has an opportunity at bat. Mm -hmm. And that all of those pieces come together to create the circumstances that we're operating in. And in many ways, they have to be solved by multiple people and multiple interventions across all of these different pieces. So there has to be intervention in the from the public side. There's got to be intervention in the private side. There's got to be changes in our capital markets and how they function, right? That all of those things have to change in yeah. order for, in the end, this individual that I wanted to serve to have their life function in a way that creates a little bit of, of flexibility, a little bit of cushion uh, in their daily life in a way that yeah. it priced fairly. 
Yeah, one of the things that you and I share, and I know Marla and I share one pretty interesting thing, and that is that we both both been founders and entrepreneurs, but we've also worked in forget companies being large in the biggest one of them all, the government. So kind of I want to double click on one thing that you were saying, which this issue of systems, right? They're usually built for efficiency. They can't handle exceptions well. You know, in the world of credit, you can talk about FICO scores being so de- determinative of all kinds of things. I want to tie that to skull, right? So you have a universe of so many things you could be doing with the capital. Um, can you describe a little bit of what just skull does and how you, as the president of the foundation, how do you think about connecting the threads in those big systems to make change happen. Skoll was incredibly attractive to me and I decided to join this organization in a leadership capacity because the history of the organization is based on entrepreneurship and Jeff Skoll was mm-hmm. one of the early leaders at eBay and that was where his his fortune came from and he established a foundation that funds social entrepreneurs to drive change across systems that inform and build, and in order for us to build a sustainable world of peace and prosperity for all. And that engagement with social entrepreneurs was so compelling that I found it irresistible. That was part one. And then part two is my role is unusual in that I lead our grant making and our funding of these social entrepreneurs. And I also lead finance and operations and the investing of our endowment. And that gives me a unique opportunity as a, we are effectively an LP in, and I'm I'm not sure if your listeners are going to know limited partners versus general partners and that financial structure in, in capital markets, but it means that we are the asset owners. We identify managers who will then go and put that capital to work on our behalf in our endowment, we use then the proceeds from our endowment and a portion of the endowment every year to make grants. And the ability to lead both sides of an organization is pretty rare in philanthropy. I'm also unusual in that I happen to have spent 25 years in financial services mm-hmm. prior to moving into philanthropy. So it's it's sort of tailor-made for me. Uh, but the opportunity to bring both of those things into alignment and allocate capital such that it performs in ways that are consistent and reinforcing of the grant dollars that we are putting to work with these social entrepreneurs is the thing that makes this truly a unique opportunity. It really is. And actually, the two sides of the house being under one person is very unusual. Usually, in most foundations, there's a wall, right? Because one, exactly. yeah. one never wall, shall, wall. Never shall the two meet. Exactly. Yeah. Never shall the two meet. Yeah, because one is tasked with being capitalist because you got to make the money. And the other one is charged with giving it away. And in between that is an IRS code, that the 5%. <laughs> and, and so anyway, uh, well, it's just an amazing role. And it just really kind of encapsulates so much of so much of what's important to you, but also leverages this kind of squiggly line career you've had. We can go on for days, but I know you got to probably go either invest billions or, or give away thousands <laughs> or whatever the, num- whatever the numbers are. Um, but I'd like to end the show with really mundane questions, and I'm going to ask you two very simple questions. When you want to eat junk food, what's your go-to? I will say there it is hard to beat the junk food in Philadelphia. I went to college in Philadelphia, 
and a good greasy cheesesteak from from John's Roast Pork in in like down near the waterfront and near the docks in Philadelphia is about as good as it gets. I I can't think of anything better. And I make it a point to be in Philadelphia and take advantage of that opportunity and get myself down there and grab one of those whenever I can, no matter what diet I'm on, no matter what I'm trying to do about eating healthy. It is the exception every time. Yeah. Kale can wait for sure. I'm taking a train <laughs> to Philly right now. I mean, you kidding me? <laughs> Favorite musical artist? Easy. You picked one that I have an easy answer. It's actually harder to answer the junk food. I am a Prince fanatic. I have been a Prince fanatic since I was probably mm -hmm. 12. I cannot still in internalize the fact that Prince is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. I will never let go of, of the music, the whole experience, the purple, all of it. Marla, <laughs> thank you for being with us. I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time and keep doing what you're doing. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. It's good to see you. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit top of the game dash the pod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening. <laughs>